Hey guys, real quick before we get started, we are doing a free giveaway for listeners between now and May 31st. Cash prizes, free swag, Yacht Meetup tickets, San Diego Padre tickets, and more. All you got to do to qualify is go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and drop a five-star review. Send a screenshot to giveaway at summerscapital.com and we'll be selecting lucky winners May 31st. As always, I appreciate the support. Now let's jump into the show. It was so difficult to raise this capital when we needed it. Um, If I had built relationships with some of the people that I spoke with when we needed it six months prior, it would have been a totally different story because these mm-hmm. guys would have known me. I would have, we would have already been vetted. They would have seen what we've been doing. We would have already been communicating. They would have been a lot more comfortable with me. There's nothing worse than someone calling you out of the blue saying, I need $4 million tomorrow. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Rich Summers Report, where we talk real estate, business, and wealth building, all while keeping it real. No fluff, no BS. I hope that you enjoy the show. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of The Report. Today, I got one of the most exciting up-and-coming real estate investors and operators in the multifamily space. He did his first deal in early 2020, and today he owns and controls $70 million worth of multifamily apartments. I got none other than Michael Garcia. What's up, Michael? Hey, how's it going, Rich? Thanks for having me, bud. Yeah, man, I appreciate you coming on the, uh, the show. Excited to dig into your story because your story is super unique, just kind of what you were doing before and then how you transition over to real estate, and now you're just taking down large deals. So why don't we go back a little bit. Tell us what you were doing before you got into the real estate. So I was a, uh, a bond trader. Um, I actually lived in Chicago, yep. working at the Chicago Board of Trade for about four and a half years, and then may, actually made my way out here um, and continued to work for that for the bond trading firm. So I was trading spreads, uh, euro dollars, and, and U.S. Treasury bonds, which was uh, a ton of fun. Uh, it was crazy. It was a ton of hours. Um, and I kind of, I guess, got to a point where things had changed a lot in that industry. And I was starting to think about kind of what was the next move. Mm-hmm. And I I knew that I wanted to get into real estate. And I just, at the time, maybe didn't know exactly what, in what capacity. So yeah, I, I went out, I got my real estate license, got my mortgage license. I realized both those things. I didn't, weren't really what I wanted to do um, and figured out that I kind of wanted to be on the ownership side. And just kind of randomly found this model, uh, literally found this model of the multifamily kind of value add space model in online, listening to podcasts, you know, like yours and a few other ones and, and started you know, trying to learn everything I could about it. Yeah. Um, it was just fascinating to me that you could buy something and, and fix it up and that the, the value of the, of the property wasn't solely based on all the properties around it that you could force the appreciation. That was what was really exciting to me, mm-hmm. right? You can just go in, renovate these units, renovate the interior, exterior, increase the rents, lower the expenses. And all of a sudden the value of your property could be, you know, double what you bought it for in a couple of years. Like that, that was extremely exciting and fascinating to me. Were you uh, educating yourself on this while you were still working the day job? I was absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I was still, I was still trading just, you know, when you're trading, you're sitting in front of a computer for hours and hours and sometimes it's really busy and sometimes you're, you know, there's, you can't do other things, but a lot of times you're waiting for, for trades to kind of progress. And, and so a lot of times you're just kind of sitting and waiting and you don't really have to do much. You can kind of tweak your, your position a little bit and kind of move in and out a little bit and build a little bit or maybe take a little bit off. But a lot of times you're just sitting there, right? So it was kind of the perfect time for me to start exploring and seeing what else, what else was out there. And so, yeah, I was absolutely doing it while I was, while I was still kind of, uh, while I was still trading and, and, you know, it just so happened that one day I kind of out of the blue that, you know, our CFO called me and just said, look, we're shutting the doors down. We're done. Liquidate all your trades in the next hour or so. We're shutting it down. So luckily I'd kind of already started that process a little bit, but it was still a big shock. Did um, you guys know, like you and your coworkers at the time, did you guys know this was coming down the pipeline or this was just news to everyone? So it was interesting because I had been talking to management about the, you know, the potential of this happening and asking, because we were in the middle of, my wife and I were in the middle of renovating our house at this time. And they weren't giving us any indication that it was happening, but looking at what was going on around us, you know, bond volatility had, had drastically dropped and everything we were doing, we were trading everything on the volatility. So everything was spread trading and it was based on, on volatility. And volatility had dropped. Um, they were firing 
people are, you know, it seemed like left and right and telling us that they were going to kind of uh, let kind of the top guys stay. But, you know, at the end of the day, I feel like maybe I should have, I should have known better, but I was listening to kind of what I was being told. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it was, um, anyways, it was, it was, it was crazy times, but it also forced me into moving on, which I think I, I needed to do as well, which I kind of had in my mind. Um, but it also kind of gave me that, maybe that push that I needed. Yeah. And you know, you are married, you have a, a couple kids. Yep. And so at the time the doors are shut and what are you thinking at this point that you're going to do? And what was the conversation like with your wife at the time? <laughs> you know, it was, uh, it was, it was scary. We were, you know, as we talked earlier, we were in the middle of renovating our house that we had just bought. Crazy. You know, I felt like I had a stable job of 10 plus years. House was torn apart. We're pumping money into it. You know, we were able to finish the house and move in, but at the same time, it was that we had a lot of conversations and trying to figure out kind of what the next step was for not only for myself, but for our family and like what we wanted to do, you know, and where we wanted to, you know, we knew we wanted to stay, you know, here in the San Diego area. We loved it, but it was, there were definitely some difficult conversations of trying to figure out the direction that, you know, we needed to go as a family and, and also kind of how I wanted my professional life to look you know, mm -hmm. going forward. And, and we both knew, she knew before I did that trading just wasn't sustainable long-term. I think you get so used to doing something that sometimes you hold on to it and you don't even really, I, I ended up not even really realizing after, after the fact why I held on to it for as long as I, I did. Other than the fact that I think maybe I was just used to it. There was a time that it really served me that it was amazing. The income was great. The schedule was, mm -hmm. was good, but like, Towards the end, it had been a few years where it, you know, it wasn't treating me well. And I, and I stuck with it again, purely, I think, because, you know, maybe kind of like a bad relationship where you remember the good times. Yeah. And so anyways, there were a lot of difficult conversations, but at the end of the day, you know, the thought process was, okay, do we, do I go and get a job to pay for the lifestyle that we have with the house and, and that, you know, or do we take a few steps back in the hope of taking a lot of steps forward in the future, right? And with that means selling the house that we literally just renovated and we're absolutely in love with, the neighborhood, the house, the area, I mean, everything, you know, taking a risk and, and selling the house and, and redeploying and starting over, right? And, and figuring out, okay, this is going to give us some runway so that I don't have to take the first job that, that comes available. And thank God she, you know, she, she was amazing through the whole process because I know I wasn't easy to deal with, you know, during this time because I also didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Even though I had kind of found this multifamily model, it feels very overwhelming thinking about not having been in real estate and saying, I'm now going to go buy an apartment complex I'm now going to start raising capital. I'm now going to start buying these, you know, all these complexes and doing all this stuff that I've never done before. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to put every dollar that we have, you know, into these as well, right? Mm -hmm. So that's not, you know, that that's not easy to to get through either. And you know, God love her, my my wife, she just fully trusted, and and she was just like, you know, yeah, let's let's sell the house, let's do what we need to do so that we can move forward. Dude, I love that, man. And Crazy. So like, to put this in perspective, today you own $70 million worth of real estate. Um, you were actually at our holiday uh, event here back in December. Yep. And you guys had closed recently on a couple larger properties out in uh, the Phoenix area. Yeah. And I remember you giving me a call uh, a few months back ago in the fall. And you're like, yeah. hey, dude, I got $700,000 deposit, non-refundable on this deal. Yeah. And we need to go raise like another six or $7 million. <laughs> Do you happen to know anyone? And I was just thinking, dude, this guy's crazy. I, yeah, crazy. <laughs> but like yeah. when your back is up against the wall like yeah. that with the non-refundable deposit, I think that's when, you know, it's uncomfortable, right? But you get uncomfortable right before the level up, right? And Absolutely. so I think because you guys had all that money non-refundable, you guys actually got that deal done. But, you know, I just wanted to share that with the listeners that like, you know, you were in that position, you got laid off, 
did your first deal three years ago, almost exactly. And now fast forward to today, you got $70 million worth of real estate. So uh, kudos to you, man. You're crushing it. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks. I appreciate it. It was, look, it's it's never a, a position that you want to be in, mm-hmm. you know, uh, calling you and being like, hey, I, I got to raise four and a half million dollars in the next, you know, 45 days or <laughs> we lose, you know, all of our earnest money deposit. So, you know, again, it's, it's it, like we were talking about earlier, it's something you learn from mm. and you try never to put yourself in that position again. And I feel like I've, I've done that in several instances in my life where things happen that are unexpected and you just, you've got to just figure out how to get through it. And, and you don't have the answers by any means, but like for me, it's every day it's forward progress. Like that, that's my, my mantra, like every day is forward progress, mm-hmm. whether it's small, whether it's large, like I want to make forward progress in, you know, pretty much every area of my life every single day. What, what do you own today? Uh, what are your, what does your portfolio look like today? So we've got, um, the first property that we, that my partner and I bought, I was up in, actually up in Oregon. Uh, we ended up selling that after a little less than two years and rolled that into a 32 unit property in Phoenix. Uh, so we've got a 32 unit a 71 unit, 64 unit, 87 and 56 apartment complexes all in in Northwest Phoenix in the West Valley area. I love that, man. And it sounds like you guys are kind of playing in that that space from 30 to less than 100 units. Yeah. Is that strategic? Absolutely it is. So when we initially decided that we wanted to uh, focus on a new market, um, it was our thoughts were either the DFW MSA or Phoenix, right? We loved all the, uh, you know, all the aspects of both mar- markets with the population growth, with the wage growth, with, you know, all the companies that were, that are moving their headquarters to, to both of these areas. There were so much, so, so many of the fundamentals that we loved about those markets. So initially we just started looking in, in both of those markets and started offering on properties in, in both of those markets. But we quickly found this was, uh, end of 2020, beginning of 2021, I think, we quickly found the market was on fire at this time. Every building that we were looking at um, was getting 10 plus 15, 20 offers, right? And we were coming in and we just, we didn't own anything in the market. We only owned one small property at the time. Again, it was kind of out of necessity that we started doing that. So we formed our own plan and tried to figure out, okay, well, how can we actually compete in these markets when we're getting blown out of the water, you know, these other groups are are underwriting, you know, these extremely low exit caps and we weren't kind of willing to do that. And so we weren't getting anywhere close to being able to pay the amount that some of these other groups were able that were that were willing to pay for for these buildings. So we weren't able to compete. So we found a space that we could compete in. Mm-hmm. So our our thought was we ended up going and trying to find more mom and pop owned kind of in that 30 to 100 unit. We kept under 100, 100 units staying, you know, under the institutional size buyers and long-term owned assets, uh, rents way below market and just kind of really targeted those specific properties mm-hmm. and, and specifically off market as well. Yeah. Um, the first property that we got, the 71 unit in Phoenix, I literally found on LoopNet, which, uh, you know, nobody, nobody likes to, nobody even, uh, most people don't even look on LoopNet, right? And it just, I get the, you know, would get the emails every day from LoopNet and typically you just go kind of scroll through them. Nothing looks interesting and you, you kind of cast it aside. I, I saw one that looked interesting. It was, it was listed. There, there's deals on LoopNet there sometimes are. though. No. I, I bought a couple on LoopNet and Absolutely. you just, you never know. And also, you know, there's listings that have been stale and sitting on LoopNet for six months, maybe even a year. And, uh, you know, you never know what happens when you go and re-engage those sellers because For sometimes sure. their expectation will, will change. Yeah. Uh, and now that there's some activity, they might change their expectation and now all of a sudden you got a potential deal. But, yeah. So you found this th- 71 units on LoopNet. Yeah, it was, look, it literally came, the day it came out, you know, I sent it to my partner. I'm like, this looks really interesting. Mm-hmm. This is like exactly what we're looking for. Long-term owned, really good bones. You know, it was uh, 80s vintage, which is good. There were just so many things to like about it. And it was also listed by a broker that didn't do much, much volume. Yeah. Didn't do much marketing, didn't do much volume, you know, in the, in multifamily, you know, hadn't done any recently. And so we just called them up, talked to them, flew out there the next day, put an offer on it. Like we loved it. We'd done the under, we did the underwriting, put an offer on it within 24 hours, probably of it being listed and ended up going into escrow within, 
you know, two days of it being listed. And that was the first deal we got. That's the only deal that we bought on market in Phoenix. The other four deals we bought have all been off market, you know, through brokers, all have been through brokers, but direct, direct to seller. What's the key to getting off market deals? You know, I think every single deal that we have gotten, we have gone in and met face to face with the owners. So every deal that we've done, we fly in, we sit down with the owners, we talk to them about the asset, we tour the asset with them, you know, and typically, again, these are long-term owners, so they love this asset, like this is their baby. And I think we've, we've just been able to build really good connections with them, and we've been able to get in front of quite a few different, you know, different owners, and, and you know, we've got a couple brokers, you know, in Phoenix that'll call us when, when they have someone um, that's looking to sell, you know, off-market, and, you know, I don't know, I just say we, we've been lucky enough to get the opportunity just to get in front of them. And I think when we get in front of them, we do a good job of building that relationship and letting them know that we want to kind of continue, continue their legacy on with the building, Mm -hmm. you know, that they've owned for so long. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, everything that we do in the real estate space, uh, in business is, is all about shaking hands and, and networking and building those relationships. Take me back a little bit to that Oregon deal. So that one, What did you guys buy it for? And then you guys sold it a couple of years later for a nice return. Yep. And that was what you 1031 exchange into the 71 unit. Did you guys also bring investor capital in for that one? So, yeah, yeah. So a few things there. So we actually ended up, we already had the 71 unit. We exchanged into a 32 unit gotcha. is what we did. But yeah, that would look, that was a great deal. Um, that was up in Oregon. Uh, it was only 12 units. God, we worked through it for, it would seem, I think it was like a year and a half of trying to figure out how to get this thing closed because the two owner, owners were older gentlemen that didn't get along. So one wanted to sell it, one didn't. They couldn't agree on price. They couldn't, like, you know, they kind of couldn't agree on anything. And it actually was my wife's grandfather's property. Mm. So again, really interesting dynamic. And then when we finally did go into escrow, her grandfather ended up passing away while we were in escrow. Oh, wow. So that kind of pushed everything out as well a bit. But great property. It was exactly, it was like everything you would kind of, you know, you you hear about and you dream about as far mm-hmm. as getting a, you know, a typical value add property that, you know, he'd owned since the early 70s, never renovated anything, just kind of kept things as is. They had an older property manager that never pushed rents ever. You know, average rents over the 12 units were $843 a unit. They were all a thousand square foot, square foot units, two bed, one bath, um, with back. The downstairs all had backyards as well. Wow! So, are these like townhome style units? Uh, no, it was just. I mean, y- y- somewhat, yes, but mm. but anyways, just just the, the bottom floor had had the back. You know, the backyards. The top one had balconies, but man, it was just such a great property. And again, there was you know the the delta of even just raising the the rents to market for unrenovated was probably. $300 a unit. You know what I mean? And then, but we went in and, and renovated every single unit and were able to eventually get up to about $1,650 a unit. The crazy thing is too, I was telling you before, once we finally did get to a point where we could, you know, where we closed on this project, it was February of 2020. And as we all know, March, you know, the world shut down. Uh, we had seven of 12 units vacant. Nobody's moving. We can't get any workers in there to do the work. You know, we're selling our house. We're using, you know, cash from our retirement accounts from our house, pumping it into this thing. And then all of a sudden it's like, we've got, you know, 60% of the units are vacant and we can't get work done and we can't get renovations done. So to say it was a scary situation is is an understatement. Um, what did you guys do to get through that situation? Because we went through something similar. Really? Uh, with our 32 unit deal in Indy. And we had closed in like December, 2019 pandemic drops in like February, March of 2020. And same thing, we we had a lot of vacancy and yeah. you know we're, we're trying to renovate these units. And there was a period during the beginning of the pandemic where everything was shut down. It was hard to, it was hard to even do a property tour or even lease out any units and that sort of thing. So it was tough. But what was the conversation like with, with you and your partner at the time? <laughs> what are we going to do? You know, again, it's one of those things where you have to figure it out as you go. And, you know, we're like, okay, what do we do? What are our options, right? So, we, we were, you know, the options are putting them up for lease, you know, as is, like they currently are, which we weren't getting any traction when we did that. And then, you know, the other thing is kind of just waiting it out. Um, and then we were talking to the management every day and just saying, what can we do? Like, what can we renovate? They're like, well, maybe we could just get one person in at a time. Because remember at that time, like you couldn't have more than, you know, you couldn't have 
anybody together. So we would literally have one person in each unit every single day doing whatever their trade was. And, you know, again, it wasn't, it may not have been the most efficient or effective way to do it, but we, you know, one by one, we just kind of started getting traction. We would have someone in there from morning until night every single day and, and, you know, in all the units and, you know, we got enough traction and, and finally, you know, get one unit done another, and then the world starts opening up a little bit again, but it was scary times because we didn't know what was going to happen, you know, mm -hmm. at all. And then even as we finished, you know, as we finished a unit, it's like, we weren't sure what rents we were going to get because you no, know, there were still weren't a lot of people moving. So we rented them for a lot lower than than they should have been rented. But we also just wanted to get them filled and and kind of stop the bleeding, you know, of of the negative cash flow. So, you know, again, I we just figured out a way to get through it and and very slowly renovated the units. What did you guys buy that deal for, and what did you sell it for? So we bought it for just over a million dollars. I think it was about ninety thousand a unit, million eighty. And we sold it for three two five. I bet I think it was two seventy one a unit. Wow! Less than two years later. That's very. That's amazing. That's very similar return than uh, that we did with our thirty two unit. Kind of in the same uh, time period. But I love that you guys, you know, encountered some issues. It's like every every deal has road bumps. That's going to have some issues in terms of operations. But it's like it's how you navigate it yeah. is to what dictates your overall return. But then you know, 21 happen, government prints a bunch of money, yep. they lower interest rates, and all of a sudden, demand for multifamily just went nuts. And you guys, it seems like you guys exited right around the, the, the good time. We, we, we definitely exited around, it was a great time to exit. Yeah. Hey guys, real quick, I hope that you're finding value in this show. If you could do me a huge favor and drop a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you're listening on, it would mean the world to me. Also, if you know of anyone that would potentially benefit from this podcast, feel free to share it with them so we can help more people build wealth through real estate investing. Now back to the show. Did you guys renovate all the units? We did. We ended up renovating all the units, yeah. I've always been curious, like, is there a big buyer pool for turnkey multifamily where, you know, there's not a lot of value to be added? So it's interesting, right? I think it's it's definitely smaller. There's definitely, I mean, there's a buyer pool out there, right, though? So the buyer that we ended up securing for that property was a father and son out of California that were doing an exchange and were, and were selling a property in California. And to them, you know, 271 a door felt like a deal because they were used to California prices, right? I think when you're in that smaller space, I think you're going to get more of those um, buyers that come in that are non-institutional, that are doing 10, 1031 exchanges, um, that are going to be looking for that. So, And that was exactly who we thought our buyer was going to be. Mm -hmm. We thought they were going to come from maybe a state like California or something like that that, were gonna be, that would be doing an exchange. And that's exactly who it ended up being. But you definitely limit your you know, your buying pool when you renovate all of them, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's it's a specific buyer avatar that wants to buy something that's already been renovated. Maybe they're not looking for a crazy return, yep. but maybe it's the type of buyer that just doesn't want to do any work and they're just going to, you know, buy some existing in-place cash flow and let time do its thing. And that's yeah. okay, too. And we still had some loss to lease, you know, mm -hmm. too. So because the initial, you know, the initial leases that we signed up, you know, our, and again, it was just our property management company. They'd been doing it for so long in that market that they were jaded. They didn't know what we could get. They're like, oh, you're not going to get over a thousand dollars a month. There's no way. Cause when we came into the market, we looked at what was available and what was available in that specific market was there was no middle ground. It was, you know, old buildings that had not been renovated or brand new class A buildings. And there was very, very little in the middle. There was, there, you know, as far as value add. So, you know, they're looking at six to $800 rents or, you know, $1,700, $1,800 rents. And so there wasn't much of a middle market. So again, they were telling us a thousand bucks a unit. So our initial lease, you know, probably one or two leases were, you know, we did the first one, I think at $1,000 rented right away. Then, you know, then the next one, like, well, let's try 1,100. Then we go 1,200, then we go 1,300. All of a sudden we're like at 1,650 a unit you know, so there was still some loss to lease for them to kind of bring that up to market too. And there were a couple other plays, other things that we were thinking about doing um, as far as washer dryer. We didn't do any of that in any of the units, you know, storage facility, you know, there on site, there was a big room that you could, you know, put some storage units in as well. So we kind of gave them a few ideas too of mm -hmm. things that we had that they could help to increase the NOI as well. But yeah, it definitely limits the buyer pool when you do that. 
I feel like with the more institutional grade property managers, their intuition in terms of like what you can achieve for rents holds a little bit more weight than versus the more mom and pop type of property managers that are maybe managing a lot of single family homes and some small multifamilies. I know um, my experience with some of the smaller mom and pop property managers have also told me, hey, like this is all you're going to get. But yeah. since then, yeah. we've we've crushed a lot of those numbers. Um, we've seen so much rent growth across the entire country, uh, even in Midwest markets. Like I own about 20 multifamily units out in Cincinnati yeah. and these are C-class deals. But, you know, with some of these studio units, we're getting almost a thousand dollars in rent right now, yeah. which is which is crazy to me. And this is in Cincinnati. So we're seeing tremendous rent growth and talk about rent growth. No one saw more rent growth over the last three to four years than than Phoenix. I mean, double digit rent growth yeah. uh, annualized. Um, just a lot of people moving into that area, a lot of growth um, and rightfully so. I think it's got good politics out there. So you see, you know, you saw a lot of people leaving California to go out to Phoenix. But talk a little bit about what kind of assets you guys are are targeting and, and buying out there in, in Phoenix. Are these steep value add projects or do you guys like to the more lighter stuff? Yeah, you know, so far we've done we've done pretty heavy value add projects. You know, as far as vintage of property, we've been anywhere from I think the the oldest is uh nineteen sixty nine and the newest is eighty five. As you kind of move forward, you also kind of learn the nuances of the older properties versus the newer properties, um, and you realize kind of the the risk that is involved, you know, with the older properties. So, you know, we're kind of transitioning a little bit right now with with everything that's going on with the market and looking for primarily just 80s and newer, you know, and kind of taking out 60s and 70s. But, um, but yeah, it's still, still looking for, you know, we, we like the heavy value add. We've actually finally started looking a little bit more at some that are maybe have a very small amount and small portion of the units that have been renovated. And maybe so they've put a little bit of capital into it. It's just a little bit less risk for us. Typically it's going to, you know, it's going to be a little bit lower return as well. But right now it's a little bit more difficult to acquire some of these heavier value add properties that we've been acquiring in the past because of the way the debt is, right? Before the debt, you know, everything was was looking forward and like, what's this property going to be worth? And this is how we're financing it. Now everything's being done on in place. So as the as the lenders have lowered leverage and they're specifically looking at you know in place income uh, for the financing, that changes what you can pay for a building, right? So we can't go in and and pay a four cap on a building like we could before. Um, and, and, you know, have a, whatever, a 4% interest rate, but we're paying a four cap. So it's not too bad. You know what I mean? So it's just, it's changed drastically. So we, we've had to change our position as far as the properties we're looking for as well. So we have to look for buildings that have a little bit more in place income, uh, than we did before. The last two deals that you bought, the larger ones, what kind of debt did you guys secure for both of those deals? Uh, so we ended up going with bank debt, uh, which was the first time we'd done really? bank debt. Really? It's like debt. a traditional bank? Yeah. Interesting. So, How come? And Well, it was just, you know, the, the what we were seeing with kind of debt funds had, was, everything was starting to change, you know, kind mm -hmm. of at that point. We closed on these two last two buildings, uh, August, I think it was August and September of last year. And so the the debt funds were just drastically changing. The terms weren't as good. The leverage was lower. We were able to use local banks and secure 4.6% fixed debt IO, um, you know, for seven years. Just it's not bad at all. Great debt, great debt. So, and we're lucky we got it close when we did, right? Because that's not that's nowhere to be found right now. That so, kind of debt you're not getting today. Not at all. Yeah. And we were we were nervous about it. We're like, you know, we were so used to you know the debt fund model, and and but again, we're we're extremely thankful. You know, there's no rate cap involved. It's just fixed. Mm -hmm. And so, anyways, it's, did you guys buy any deals in the past on on floating rates? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, the the first deal we bought in Phoenix, the 71 unit, we paid, I think it was either 31 or $32,000 for a, a rate cap. And the strike price of it right now is, it's worth 335000 I think, is what it is. So wow. over 10x of what we paid for it. So if you, is that the one you're re recapitalizing right now? Yeah. And so by selling that, you can sell that rate cap. Correct. And, and get that money back. Correct. Wow. Yeah. So How much runway money. is left on that rate cap? ballpark we still have over a year left because it was it was a three-year rate cap so yeah. we're at we bought it that property in may of 21 so we're, we're almost at two years so it's still got 14 months or so left i love that so talk a little bit about that deal and this recap that you're doing um what, what is a recap 
So uh, basically, we just, you know, there's an investor group that um, is coming in and, and buying out our investors. Um, it's it's a good opportunity for both sides. They're going to allow, you know, if, if some of our investors want to stay in the deal, they can stay in the deal. If they want to cash out, they can cash out. Uh, myself and my partner will be, you know, going back into the deal on the general partnership side uh, with this capital group and partnering with them. Um, and they're br- basically bringing in their investors and buying out our investors for, um, you know, today's value. So it's it's just, I don't know, it's a good deal all around, you know, for, for everybody involved. Yeah, I think it is. A, a, it's good for both parties because your investors get a nice return um, in just a couple years time. And then the next group is going to come in and there's still value to be added with this, yep, with this property. But then it's a win-win for the GPs and you guys because you guys get to stay in the deal and uh, continue to operate it and uh, receive cash flow. What it, we also get to pay back our investors, right? We get mm-hmm. to pay back our investors. We get to we get to give them some returns. You know, that's the, another thing we were talking about earlier is that, you know, being early in the game, we've got five properties now um, and we haven't been able to, you know, return investors capital. This is going to be our first, you know, kind of, uh, you know, full cycle turn where we can return people's capital. We can show them that we know what we're doing. We can show them that we're being responsible with their money. We can show them that in a, in a, a difficult market right now, we're, we're able to still produce a good return. So I think that's going to be very helpful as well. It's very helpful. Um, I think, you know, in order to go full cycle, especially with the way things have been uh, recently with the interest rates and, you know, early on we had COVID, but um, I think for you guys to push past all those road bumps and challenges and growing pains that come with growing a business and buying real estate and then return that that kind of return profile to your investors is is big in terms of trust. But then also those investors are going to go tell more of their friends Absolutely, and family yeah. to come back and invest with you guys. So it tends to snowball, but um, excited for you guys. The two deals that you took down recently. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about those. So, <laughs> you know, you called me like, hey, man, we... I, you you had just raised a bunch of money. What yeah. was the total raise between those two deals? Uh, let me think. Between those two deals, I think it was about maybe fourteen million. Fourteen like million. That. Yeah. Wow. And you guys are not, you know, on social media, on podcasts. Do you guys? How are you guys meeting uh, fourteen million dollars worth of investor capital? You know, it's it's been you know again like we were talking earlier. It's 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 been kind of organic growth for us. Mm. Um, we are you know. Myself and my business partner have great circles of people, I think, around us or people that we know. And, and we've just been able to kind of very organically grow our investor base, you know, property by property. Each one we will typically get, a, you know, each investor will kind of refer us out to a friend or two, you know, for each one. And um, and we've just grown it, like I said, very organically. I mean, you know, we've got one group that is kind of pseudo-institutional, but the, the chairman of, of that company is you know, owns, owns a vineyard up in Napa and just is a great guy. He's been, he's been, you know, a mentor to us and I've known him for, I don't know, five, six years, just, just from going to his vineyard in Napa and knowing he was a real estate guy. When I, when I started on this journey, I met with him and just kind of told him what I was doing. And I was mm. very, you know, very passionate about it and excited about it. And, you know, he kind of very nonchalantly was just like, you know, let me know when you find something, you know, maybe we'll invest. And, you know, to date, they've been his his group has been our largest investor in in almost every deal. So, you never know where it's going to come from. I guess is what I would say. I didn't expect that you know them to do anything. I was just looking for a little bit of advice. And like I said, they've now come into almost every deal you know for us. Um, so, uh, again, it's everything is is with you know kind of friends and family and and just organically growing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you guys do 506B or 506C? 506C. We're, okay. Everything's all, we're doing all accredited investors. All accredited. Yeah. Have you guys done the B? We have not, no. Okay. So you guys can market and solicit. And for the listener out there, uh, 506B, you can't market or solicit for investors. You can't go on social media and say, hey, we're looking for a bunch of investors for this particular deal. But you can bring in non-accredited investors, uh, meaning it doesn't matter what kind of income they make or net worth. Those invest- investors can invest in your deals. But the 506C, uh, and this is an SEC regulation or guideline, 506C allows you to market and solicit for investors, but you can only bring in accredited investors, meaning they got to at least have a million dollar net worth or make more than $200,000 per year. So that's interesting because I've done both, the B and the C. What's your thoughts? Um, which, which one do you like better? I think, I think it depends. If, if you're new 
and you're a relatively newer investor or syndicator operator and you don't have a large track record, I think it's a lot easier in a 506B because I think a lot of the early people that are going to be investing in your deals are people that yeah. already know, like, and trust you and you have relationships sure. with friends, family, co old coworkers, and that sort of thing. And the C is a little bit more challenging for a newer investor because it's hard to attract a um, accredited investor if you don't have the track record because a lot of accredited investors know they're a little bit more sophisticated. Sure. And so they might know, hey, I can invest in all these other operators and they might know that they have options. Um, and so why are they going to go with the person that's brand new? You yeah. see what I'm saying? So Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. And one thing I'll tell you too that I think was very important in in our trajectory, not that just that we you know, had some, had some good connections that decided to invest in us. They definitely, you know, took a flyer on us. But at the same time, the first property that we did, you know, the Oregon property, um, that was one that we did, you know, with our capital mm -hmm. and we did on our own in order to kind of prove out the model. So we at least had, um, kind of some sort of success, not that it was a huge track record, but and that is big, though. Done, yeah, we had at least done it. It mm -hmm. wasn't just theory. And you did um, it with all your own money, too. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so we were able to at least go in and say, this is what we're doing on this project right now, you know, and, and show them, like, this is where rents were. Rents were at 843. We're currently leasing at 1650. You know, here's the model that we implemented. Here's the, you know, here's the finish outs. Here's exactly what we've actually done versus, you know, this is what I've read or you know, seen. So mm -hmm. I think that was very helpful as well, at least having one example of going out and, do, and, and doing it on your own. And I, I guess I'd say to anybody out there that is wanting to do this, you know, I would say to try to do that on some sort of scale, even if it's a duplex or something, you know what I mean? Just go through it because as you go through the process, you're going to learn a lot just going kind of through the whole thing. You're going to make mistakes. And I think it's better ideally to make more of the mistakes with your own money than your investor's money. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I agree with you there. What what is the biggest mistake you've made so far? Oh, you know that's a tough question. You know, there's the obvious of saying like, I wish I would have quit my trading job five years ago and jumped mm -hmm. into this at the perfect time. Mm -hmm. You know, there's that. Um, I would say most recently, you know, is kind of what we touched on maybe earlier is really getting you know having three deals in escrow and not having the capital behind us necessarily for all three deals and thinking that we could figure it out just as we went. And we did, we yeah. did figure it out, but it was not without a ton of stress, right? And so I think, you know, you hear it all the time of like build those capital relationship, build those, you know, the worst time you can raise money is when you need a deal. Mm -hmm. Well, it's never more true than when that's, you know, actually true. So for me, I would say, again, I, I wish we would have been working more and talking to more capital groups uh, leading up to that so that we weren't, you know, desperate for it, you know, at the time when we needed it. So they say, um, they say, if you find the deal, the money will come. <laughs> Do you agree with that statement? I don't know. Uh, that's, that is, I don't like that statement because <laughs> that implies that all you have to do is find the deal mm -hmm. um, and that someone will rescue you. And I don't, I don't believe that that's the case at all. Um, I think that like everything, you 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 got to put in the time leading up to it in order to be able to get the capital as well. You got to put in the time to build the relationships with the brokers. You got, you know, to find the deals. You got to put in the time to find the capital. You know, it was so difficult to raise this capital when we needed it. Um, if I had built relationships with some of the people that I spoke with when we needed it six months prior, it would have been a totally different story because these mm -hmm. guys would have known me. I would have, we would have already been vetted. They would have seen what we've been doing. We would have already been communicating. They would have been a lot more comfortable with me. There's nothing worse than someone calling you out of the blue saying, I need $4 million tomorrow. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I agree with you in, in that statement too. Like find the deal, the money will come. I don't think that's necessarily true because I could have the best deal in the world. And if I'm an alcoholic and drug addict living on the streets, are you going to invest in my deal? Yeah, exactly. So I think you need the competency first For sure. in order to attract the capital. But kudos to you guys. I mean, you guys figured it out. You guys got it done. And I think sometimes you just got to you gotta just get in there and go. Yeah. Because, I mean, you guys initially had how much earnest money deposit on that deal? So initially we had 300000 Yeah. It was two deals, 87 unit and 56 unit. And then we had the capital to close on, on the 87 unit. So on the larger project, we had them both in the same PSA. So we wanted to bifurcate the deals. 
um, and, and separate them so that we could close on one property and then continue, we needed an extension for the second property. So kind of out of good faith, we're like, hey, we'll close on the 87 unit uh, and give us a, you know, a 30 day extension on the 56 unit. And he's like, yeah, that sounds good, but this is, this is the only way I'm gonna do it. And initially he said he wanted a million total. Mm. So he wanted us to put, in, uh, put, us, put an additional 700,000 in, all non-refundable. And so we went back and forth for, you know, for a little while and we finally, he was at a point where he's like, look, the lowest I'll go is 700,000. We need an additional 400,000, all non-refundable. This is what it is or walk away and we'll be fine. And how much more time did they give you? Only 30 days. And did you have another, what was, what was the plan if you got to the 30 days and you just needed a little bit more time? <laughs> I don't know. We, I mean, <laughs> we begged for more time. Yeah. We, listen to this, this is funny actually. We flew to Phoenix. When, this is when we still didn't fully have, know where the money was gonna come from. Set up a meeting with a seller right after we closed with the 87 unit. And the thought is, okay, this, he's gonna be happy. We just put, $18 million in his pocket. I think he owed, I don't know, two or three million on the property. We bought it for 18 something. So we put 16 million bucks in his pocket. This guy's gonna be happy. He's gonna be excited. We're gonna go to lunch together and we're gonna pitch for him to carry back the 4 million. That was mm. the idea. That was our, you know, we're like, he's gonna carry it back. This is gonna be, this is gonna, this is gonna work. It's gonna be a good deal for him. It's gonna be a good deal for us. You know, as soon as we can refi him out, we'll refi him out and Man, this guy was salty. Um, we showed up, we show, man, he shows up for lunch and he is just like, this is after, you know, closing on one of his properties and literally, like I said, he put 16 million in his bank account and he is, he's like angry at us and because we haven't closed on the other property and, you know, because he had to separate them and because we haven't closed on the other property, he's just, anyways, he shows up, doesn't want to look at us. He's upset takes us a good 30, 40 minutes just to warm them up. And then, you know, my, my business partner kind of throws it out on the table of like, you know, what do you think about, you know, seller financing $4 million? He just, he shut it down in a second. And he was just like, don't even ask. He's like, you guys need to figure this out. I'm not bailing you out here. Wow. I'm like, okay, well, we tried. So anyways, we, we tried to butter him up. Then it was, then, then it was like, okay, we're not getting it from him. So let's figure out what the next plan is. And, and then it was going through my phone, figuring out like who to call, who to talk to, who to reach out to, who do you know that might be able to help, you know, and we're, you know, we're open to splitting the pie. However we have to, let's just get this thing done and, and, and move forward. And so did you, how did you guys find the rest of the money? Um, so, you know, again, a lot, a ton of zoom calls, you know, a ton of phone calls and just meeting as many different people in the space as we could that were kind of in that world of, of capital raising and, and just trying to find the right person. It ended up, we, we ended up having two people that, two groups that were interested. Um, one was a local guy in Phoenix that um, has been in real estate for a long time, who's very interested, but at the same time, he also didn't, didn't really know us. Um, so he was a little hesitant. Um, and then we ended up finding a group through our analyst. So we ended up, we hired our, our analyst that does all our underwriting uh, off of upwork.com, two and a half, three years, probably three years ago. You know, when the pandemic hit, he was a private equity guy, ended up deciding he wanted to work on his own, got an Upwork, just a fantastic analyst. And so, you know, I just reached out to him again with reaching out to everybody, you know, that I knew in the industry. Uh, he was one of the guys I reached out to. I knew that he worked with several other groups. We weren't his only, you know, group that he was doing, you know, analyst work for. So just kind of let him know. I didn't think anything of it. I didn't think there was any chance. I just, hey, if you know of anybody, this is this is where we're at. We've got this deal in escrow. You know, we need to raise this amount of dollars. And if you know of anybody that um, is looking to place some capital, just let us know. And his his initial response was, yeah, that's you know that's not really what I do, but um, you know, you know, no worries. I'll let, you know talk later. That was it. And you know, next week I kind of text him, hey, what's going on? You know. Still looking for money. And next week, hey, what's going on? Still looking for money. All of a sudden, we're out in Phoenix and he texts me, still looking for money? Yes, we are. And he's like, you know, we, a group that, I, that I'm working with um, had a deal that fell out of escrow. Um, the seller wouldn't retrade, you know, with everything going on. And, and both sides didn't think it was, it was the right deal. So it fell out of escrow. And he's like, we've got some capital we need to place. Tell me about the deal. So, and, and that's, and they, we ended up, going with that group and it was um you know it was it was 
fast. It was it was quick. It was it was crazy, but it worked out. You know, wow. they flew out there toward the property. We met them toward the property, showed them some of our other properties. What I would say though is it was through an existing relationship. I don't think we would have. I don't think they would have invested with us their investors capital if we hadn't have had this relationship with their analyst. Sure. Right. We had a three year ongoing relationship with their analyst who could vouch for us. Mm. And so that, I think that was massive. And I think, I think that was the biggest thing that pushed it over. And that was one of the things that I really took away from that whole scenario was, again, is you got to reach out and you got to make these connections before you need something. You yeah. know what I mean? And, and that was, anyways, extremely, extremely valuable information to have learned on that because I promise you we won't let that happen again. Learning to become a successful real estate investor can take a lot of time and dedication, which some people just don't have. If you're one of these individuals, this doesn't mean you can't invest in real estate. My company, Summers Capital, is buying a bunch of boutique hotels right now, and you can invest with us in these deals without having to do any of the work. Our team sources the deals, we secure the lending, we take care of all the renovations, and we even handle all the day-to-day operations with our in-house management company, making it truly hands-off and passive for our investors. If you want to learn more to see if we can help you, go to summerscapital.com slash invest to book a call with our team. Again, that's summerscapital.com slash invest. Now back to the show. I love that you know you guys ultimately ended up finding the money and it came in in one swoop. And so they were a family office, correct? Uh, not really, somewhat like that, but they're, they're, they're um, just a, a capital raising group that raises for all different asset classes. Multifamily is one of them, you know, but they, they do hotels, multifamily and all that. And so it was... Um, yeah, it's, just, it's more of a capital raising group, but mm-hmm. uh, it just, yeah, it worked out. And you were saying before we started recording today that that group, because you know, a lot of these, these funds or family offices that come in and bring the majority of the capital for a deal, uh, they typically want in the operating agreement, they want to have a lot of voting and control rights. Um, and some of the language might even say, hey, we have the uh, ability to uh, you know, kick off the manager and bring yeah. in, basically take over the property. Um, but you mentioned before we started recording that these guys didn't want a whole lot of control. They just wanted to be a part of the the asset management meetings. That's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, no, it's, look, it's been a great partnership so far. They've been amazing. It's like, you know, they're kind of feeling us out. We're feeling them out. But um, look, so far it's been, it's been fantastic. I mean, again, like you said, they, they, they weren't asking for a ton of control, you know, in the, in the deal and, and they're not calling us every day and, and over, you know, looking over our shoulder every single day. They're kind of letting us do our thing. They've, you know, seen our other assets and seen how we're managing them and how we're running them. Uh, we send them updates every, every week. Um, and, you know, whenever they need anything, go over, you know, any of the financials. But the, for the most part, I mean, yeah, it's, it's been great. They, they weren't looking for the controls, you know, they, they want to raise capital and put it out there and make sure that the manager is running, you know, running the deal well. But, they don't want to be involved in the day-to-day, you know, with every deal. What was that feeling like when you guys finally closed? You get your uh, due diligence costs, because I'm sure you guys had legal costs and yeah. due diligence costs that were sunken in the deal, plus the $700,000 deposit and an acquisition fee. Uh, what was that feeling like for you and your partner? I, I can't even imagine. It was a massive weight off our shoulder. I mean, massive weight off our shoulder. It was, it was weird, though, because we felt like it took me a while, I feel like, like a week or so to really like unwind. Really? Because I felt like I'd been so like, you know, uptight and wound up for for months, you know, that I, I could, wasn't just a, like, it closed and we all of a sudden, you know, mm-hmm. relaxed. So it took me a little bit to kind of unwind and really like realize that it, it had closed and that we did get it done. But um, just a really good feeling, you know? I mean, you know that feeling when you get something done that, that, you have no idea, you know, when you're in it, you have no idea how you're going to get through it or how you're going to get it done. And then you do, you know, get across the finish line. It's like, it's this, I don't know, it's just this um, unbelievable feeling, I guess. It was, it, it was great. Yeah, I, I can imagine. And and kudos to you guys. I mean, I think, I think you were telling me at the Christmas party, like, I asked you, I said, hey, had you not had the 700K <laughs> non-refundable, do you think that you guys would have got the deal done? And I, I believe you said no. Yeah, I, I don't know that we would have. There, I mean, you know, again, it was it was a necessity. I I I would have fought and clawed until the last second mm-hmm. if we hadn't have got you know hadn't gotten that capital. Like, there's no. Th- that's one thing about me is like I don't I'm not willing to give up. And 
you know, I've been, I was an athlete my whole life. I was a collegiate athlete, played tennis in college. I still, I, I try to still think I'm an athlete and try to do things that strengthen my mind so that I won't quit. You know, last year, um, I did this challenge with a buddy of mine here where we did the, um, you know who David Goggins is? Yeah. We did the four by four by 48. No way. Where we did four miles every four hours for 48 hours. Holy cow. So we ran 48 miles in 48 hours, running through the middle of the night. And I didn't really train that much for it. Like I was, I run a lot. I run maybe, you know, three to five miles, you know, three times a week or something like that. But I didn't ramp up too much for the training, but I felt like it was going to be everything. I mean, at least that's what David Goggins says, right? It's all mental. So I'm like, I can do this. Like, and so going through that was just such a mental challenge. And I think about that, like I try to do stuff like that to help strengthen my mind so that I won't give up when I'm in a scenario like I was in with the 700,000 non-refundable, right? That's so good. And so when you do the, what is it called? The four by 48? Four by four by 48. It's four miles every four hours at 48 hours. And how long is it? So in between the four miles, do you get, you just get to take a little nap or how yeah, does that work? I mean, a little one, right? Little so you food, got, yeah. so we started at 8 PM on a Friday night and we finished our last run, I think was at noon on a Sunday. And yeah, you've got, I mean, you think about it, right? You run four miles, you know, we're typically running somewhere between eight to 10 minute miles. So, you know, 40 minutes ish, something like that. You, then now you've got three hours. You've got to be back, you know, a little bit early. By the time you get home, sh I think I showered between every single one of them. You know, you've got about two to two and a half hours, maybe max. So like the late ones were tough, right? So like the midnight one, you get home, you know, close to one, take a shower, get in bed at 1.30 and you're getting back up at 3.15 or 3.30 max, right? You got to get back over there and be wow. ready by four. So where did you guys do it at? Uh, you know, I, we live in Solana Beach and so uh -huh. we just did it locally there. Just Who's kind of, we? Uh, me, a buddy of mine, James. And then there were two other girls that did it with us, yeah, Aaron and Christy. But yeah, so there were four of us total. You, does that your did wife it. think you're crazy for doing that? She, I, I'm sure she does. <laughs> she, she doesn't know why I torture myself like this, but it's something where I like, I like to try to feel like I'm still that athlete I was. Yeah. Um, but again, a lot of, I mean, it was painful, and and I ended up coming out with a few injuries, but it was all just from that. You got yeah, hurt. but it was yeah. all like it was all mental, right? Mm. Like if you don't allow your mind to give up, you can do these crazy things. I think, right? And the whole time I was also listening while I was running. I was listening to the David Goggins book on audiobook mm. um, too. So I kind of had that in my in my ear pumping me up as well. But yeah, it was um it was it was a great experience. Again, it 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 teaches you that you can do a lot more than you think you can if you just don't give up. I love that. Where did where did you play tennis at? College tennis. Uh Baylor University. No way, you went to Baylor. Yeah. That's yeah. um out there in uh, Austin, Texas, right? Waco. 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 Waco it's about Texas. an hour okay. north of about an hour, hour north of um, of Austin. Wow, so you're an NCAA Division One yeah. uh, tennis player. Yeah. That's amazing, dude. Yeah. So I grew up in San Antonio um, and ended up staying in Texas and, and played there. I didn't the know university. that. Do you play pickleball yeah. today? You know what's funny? I I love pickleball. I feel like I always get injured. I was actually mm. playing pickleball two weeks ago and like threw my back out. It's like I don't know if it's just the little quick movements. I love it. I love playing. Um, so when I can, I do. But but yeah, it's it's a ton of fun. A yeah, ton of fun. I love that. And uh, I want to ask you, switch gears here a little bit. So you, I remember you telling me you were working with, uh, what's his name, up in um, Reed Goosens, who's up in LA. Yeah. And um, he mentored you guys with your first couple of deals. Yeah, right? look, Reed's, man, He's he's been incredible. Um, instrumental in 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 mine in our success, you know, I did a um, a little like a mentorship course with him. I, I think it's the only one he's ever offered, and they only had like five people in it, and it was just like perfect timing for me. I felt like again, just not even having known him leading up to that, but listening to his podcast, I felt like we would get along well. I felt like you know, kind of you know, values were aligned. I. I really intrigued by everything he had to say. He's, he's an incredibly intelligent guy and, and has has been around doing this for a while. And so, you know, we just, we connected and I literally just reached out to him after hearing one of his podcasts. He's like, hey, if you ever, you know, want to connect, uh, you know, one hour a week, I connect with people. I literally just reached out to him. And he was like, oh, I've actually got this, you know, course, I'm going to, I'm going to try out doing a course, you know, in the next, whatever, so many months. And so I did it. And he's, he's been amazing, man. He was our, 
key principal and signed on the on the debt for the 71 unit deal uh, for that deal to help get us going. And we've continued to stay in touch ever since. He's now buying deals in Phoenix. Is he really? Um, yeah, he's now buying deals in Phoenix. We talk all the time, um, talk shop. Yeah. Time I have any questions, reach out to him. He reaches out to me, you know, about the market as well. Um, I'd say between that and then and my business partner. My business mm-hmm. partner has been unbelievable, man. He's a, a real estate transactional attorney um, that's been in this business for for twenty plus years. His his clients you know, buy hotels and apartments and, and all that. And just the knowledge that he has is, is, has been instrumental in our success, I would say as well. So, you know, again, those two guys, I would say have, have by far been the biggest influence, you know, on, and what I'm doing. And, you know, again, luckily I'm business partners with one of them and the other one, Reed is, is mentor. Yeah. Mentoring. And so he's, he's been just been amazing. Anyways, they're, they're, both amazing people and, and have helped me. I, I I had a lot of knowledge that, you know, kind of that was all like theoretical knowledge, you know, mm. from podcasts and books and all that. And then you bring in, you know, my business partner who has the real life experiences of everything. And, and then you bring in someone like Reed as well. And oh my gosh, man, it's just, it's kind of, I feel like put a fire under us and kind of catapult, catapulted us forward. Yeah. I uh, I met your partner at our holiday yep. party. Super nice guy, and I've had Reed on my old podcast, the uh, Multifamily Takeoff, years back. Um, I'd love to get him on this show yeah. sometime and and talk shop. But great dude, and just always wanting to help others, which I always appreciate. I want to ask you who how do you who do you guys use for management with all your assets yeah. out there in Phoenix? Yeah, we use a company called Calcap Properties. They're a pretty big group, and they're a big group. Yeah, I think they've got. Somewhere around 5,000 maybe assets under management. And I think- All in Phoenix area. I think about 4,000 of them are there in Phoenix. They, they manage mm-hmm. in a few other areas, but their primary, um, they're, they're headquartered there out of Phoenix. Um, that's the, kind of their primary market. And yeah, they've, they've just been, they've been great for us. Do you guys have any onsite staff at any of your properties, like leasing or maintenance? Yeah, no, we definitely do. So that's the interesting thing, right? That's probably the, the, the toughest thing about these under 100 unit properties. Yeah is, you know, managing those payroll expenses per property for the smaller properties. So the way we've done it is we actually have one uh, leasing agent and two maintenance for three of the properties for the 71, 64, and 32. Okay. Um, and we have the leasing agent at one of the properties three days a week and another property two days a week and just kind of roving. And occasionally maybe we'll bring in a temp. And then we've got our two maintenance guys kind of roving between the three properties. And that's and kind of how we've done it. And then the other that. two properties, we've got one leasing and, and one maintenance that's, that are working the two They're properties. They're full-time? Yeah, okay. full-time. Do you guys have a, do any of your properties have a leasing office? Yes. Yeah, yeah, they do. So we've got two, shoot, four out of the five have a leasing office. So yeah, so we've got leasing offices so they can go whenever they're kind of roving um, they can, they have an office fully set up for them as well, but that's just the way that we found it to be kind of the most efficient is kind of pairing. We've got three that are all within a mile of each other. And then we've got the other two are within about a mile and a half of each other. And just having the leasing person kind of rove. And occasionally when traffic picks up, you know, we'll bring in a temp to kind of help out, um, a little bit, but that's the best way we've been able to find some efficiencies as far as for that size, you know, this year. I would say our goal is to go a little bit larger as far as unit size, um, just to try to get those those efficiencies. It's just it's hard to, you know, be efficient, you know, with payroll and and you know your maintenance and repairs and all your expenses when you've got you know thirty two units and fifty six and sixty four. Mm-hmm. So, but at least you guys are able to share payroll across yeah. uh, the assets that you have in the market versus it, just yeah. having one asset. And that's man. It, yeah, and that's helped a ton, right? It just it 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 didn't make sense. It, you know, it wouldn't have made financial sense to have you know, one leasing manager per property. So in order, so to be able to share really makes sense. I mean, we were looking at a deal um, the other day down in, in, in Mesa and it just didn't make sense. It was like a 50 unit deal. Good, you know, great deal, but we don't have anything down there. Mesa is Southeast where all of our buildings are Northwest. Mm-hmm. Like we would need another project probably of the same size in order to kind of share expenses. So it just didn't make sense for us, unfortunately, because of that. So Phoenix Metro is big. It's big, yeah. Like, it's spread out. I think San I think of San Diego as as pretty good size, but you go out to Phoenix and for whatever reason I've always had, you know, you think of Phoenix, you're like, okay, like relatively populated city. 
But, you know, it's flat, not a lot of mountains. And so, you know, if you don't know anything about Phoenix, you would think, okay, you can drive from one corner to the other corner relatively quickly. But it's not the case. I mean, driving from Scottsdale down to Mesa and then Mesa up to Glendale. Yeah. You're driving hours, right? Yeah. And we've got and we've got two properties northwest of Glendale as well. Mm. So two of our properties are in Glendale, but then we've got we've got three properties northwest of Glendale. So, again, when you fly into the airport, you know, which is southeast and then you're, you know, driving northwest, like you said, I mean, it takes us 45 minutes to an hour to get up there. And so, and then if you're, if you're going all the way down to make, like we can't be sharing, you know, leasing agents for any of our properties like that. We, we have to have enough units for it to make sense. So anyways, yeah, that's where we're at. And, and we've, we've been able to make it make sense, but we've, we've also kind of clumped all of our buildings in the same area as well. So you guys are closing this recap deal in about a month you mentioned. What's the next move? Are you guys going to look to redeploy that, that capital? Absolutely. You know, I, it's, it's tricky right now, right? So there's, um, there's still a decent spread in the bid ask between where sellers are looking to sell and where mm. buyers are looking to buy. Um, so we're still trying to figure that out. We've, we've underwritten a lot of deals and we're just, we're not quite there yet. We're close. We've gotten close on a few, but we're just not quite there. So the ideal scenario, right, is to find a, a new deal and transition into that with the capital that's coming out of this building. So we'll just have to see, you know, kind of what happens with the market and, and you know, where, where, where prices go. But we're, we're actively looking. So um, I, we know we'll find something. We just haven't yet. Yeah, love that. Well, Michael, it's been a pleasure, man. I'm, uh, I'm so excited for you and um, definitely humbled by all of your success. So good luck on the recap deal. Thank you. Uh, let me know when it closes. And I uh, appreciate you coming on the show, man. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Listeners, appreciate you guys tuning in. See you in the next one. Peace. 